The following podcast contains references to mental health issues that some listeners may be very sensitive to. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at RAINNetwork.com. Welcome to the RAIN Insights podcast from RAIN Network. In this podcast episode, David Lawrence, co-founder of RAIN, speaks with Dr. Allison Paolini and Dr. Jean Deisinger about the methods of mitigating and preventing instances of school violence. Dr. Allison Paolini is Assistant Professor of School Counseling at Arkansas State University and the Director of the University's MSE School Counseling Program. Prior to Arkansas State, Dr. Paolini was an Assistant Professor of Counselor Education at Keene University. Dr. Paolini holds a PhD in Counselor Education, Curriculum, and Instruction from the University of South Florida, a Master's of Science, Counselor Education and Guidance Services from Long Island University, and an undergraduate degree in Communications from Hofstra University. Dr. Paolini is an author, and in addition to papers and journal articles in her field, in 2022, Routledge published her book, Using Social-Emotional Learning to Reduce School Violence. Through his training and experience as a licensed psychologist, certified health service provider in psychology and state certified peace officer, Dr. Jean Deisinger brings a unique perspective to the field of forensic and law enforcement psychology and threat assessment and management. Since 1993, Jean has served as the primary threat manager for major organizations. He has provided training and consultation on threat assessment and management issues to a range of schools, colleges, universities, corporations, governments, and law enforcement agencies. He also provides training and consulting to law enforcement agencies regarding leadership and organizational development, crisis management, preparation and response to active threat incidents, response to persons with mental illness, hostage crisis intervention, and post-incident trauma response. He is the lead author for the Handbook for Campus Threat Assessment and Management Teams and a practical guide for colleges and universities who are developing the capacity for threat assessment teams. Jean and Allison, uh, in advance, I want to thank you for truly spending some time with us uh, for the honor and privilege of addressing an important topic that unfortunately uh, shows up always um, and constantly. Uh, in our daily lives, um, but it's going to be hopefully an informative conversation in terms of what I'll refer to as uh, understanding where we are in the phenomenon of what people, I guess, refer to as our mass violence, active shooters, these types of events that um, increasingly uh, are part of the daily headlines. Uh, but let me begin, um, maybe I'll start with Eugene because we go back a ways. Uh, maybe you can explain to the audience, uh, as well as Allison, uh, a little bit about what you are doing in this space and why you're doing it and sort of where you are right now. Glad to, David. It's always a pleasure to collaborate with you, and I was uh, really glad uh, for the opportunity to do so with Allison as well. So. Uh, my background is as a clinical and forensic psychologist specializing in behavioral threat assessment and management, trying to help communities and organizations implement and operate uh, proactive and preventative approaches to identify subjects who are engaging in concerning or threatening behavior. Um, not all of that is focused on mass violence by any means, but a uh, substantial and unfortunately increasing component of it has been over the last several years, uh, as I think we all uh, try to work together to find ways to reduce this incredible dynamic that we're dealing with. And so uh, while my background and training is in uh, clinical and forensic psychology, I've also served as a law enforcement officer and so um, had the uh, uh, the experience of seeing firsthand the results of uh, violence and its impact on victims, on survivors, on communities. And so it just made me deeply invested in this issue. And so I, David, each time you reach out, I'm, I'm excited for the opportunity to, to visit. And again, Gene, thanks. And uh, I think we'd be remiss if we, uh, this is not to date you, uh, Gene, but um, 
certainly some of your work uh, will go back historically to the tragedies of Virginia Tech shootings, uh, and I know you were intimately involved in the aftermath and the postmortems and you know the analysis of lessons to be learned. So I just wanted to underscore that for the audience uh, because I think that's important context about the perspective that you, you bring to bear. Sure. Allison, um, please, um, illustrious career and great background. Oh, thank you, David. You're too kind. Um, it's so wonderful to be here with everyone today. It really is such a wonderful opportunity. I'm so honored. So my name is Dr. Allison Palini. Um, I'm the program director at Arkansas State University for the MSE School Counseling Program. And our master's program really trains and educates students just to become transformational K-12 school counselors. So that's been a very, very exciting venture. Um, I've been in academia for over 10 years, so it's been, it's been a minute. Um, prior to being in academia, I was an elementary school counselor at a Title I school. Um, there were a lot of challenges at that school, gang-related issues, poverty, homelessness, um, you name it. Bullying was a huge issue, right? So it was a very inspirational, eye-opening time in my life. And that career really motivated me and inspired me to pursue my doctoral degree and then go into academia to help other school counselors become the best that they can be. And much of my research, I would say, focuses on school violence. It's a passion of mine, um, just in terms of the causes, the role of bullying, right? There's definitely a correlation there. And also a focus on what are some best practices. We know that school violence is an ongoing pervasive issue that continues to escalate. Um, and I think until we really implement some of these practices, we're probably going to continue to see over and over again, like we are, right? Um, these, these violent atrocities occurring. So this is such an important conversation to have and I'm just really grateful to be a part of it. All right, well, thank you again, Allison. And uh, I wanted to emphasize, I'll call it a holistic approach uh, to this conversation because uh, while very often these events focus on schools and universities, and even um, there have been tragedies at elementary schools, Allison, as you know, um, this is a, I'll call it a contagion that has impacted our houses of worship, where we recreate, where we shop, where we go for entertainment and the arenas. And it is a, a broad, um, what I'll refer to as, uh, you know, a bit of a U.S. phenomenon, although things have occurred overseas. And so maybe, uh, Gene, I'll start with you, and maybe you can help define sort of what this problem is, and I'm, I'm old enough to remember the um, shooting from the Texas University of Texas Tower, which at that point um, was a very, very shocking event, and I started law school at UT, so, you know, I saw the tower, and I remembered the events from when I was very, very young, uh, but it felt very isolated then. It, this did not feel like a common occurrence. It felt very aberrational. And maybe both of you can shed some light in terms of what we're seeing and why we're seeing it. Sure, I can do that. And um, yeah, I think particularly when you look in the, uh, not only in the educational sphere, but in terms of the impact on the community, the Texas Tower shooting from August 1st of 1966 uh, was certainly not the first incident of its kind, uh, but it was one of the more striking ones. And I would agree with you, David, uh, very much so that the tempo, the pattern of those incidents has increased fairly dramatically, um, and all the more so in the last two decades and increasingly so in the last decade. And that's true not only across uh, schools, although schools have been uh, up and down over that time, uh, but in a variety of areas, and, and you highlighted several of those. Um, like you, I go back a long way. I actually got into threat assessment and management because of an incident at uh, our sister institution. At the time, I worked at Iowa State University, and on November 1, 1991, there was a mass homicide 
that occurred at the University of Iowa. And it was really startling in the after action reviews that came from that of uh, what was known or reasonably knowable about the, the subject who ultimately engaged in those behaviors, uh, the, uh, the lack of lawful and ethical information sharing that inhibited the ability to understand what was going on. And frankly, we dealt with similar issues, not in terms of mass violence risk, but in terms of significant concerns, um, behavioral concerns by an individual. And that was really what prompted me as a psychologist to become interested in these issues. My background is in trauma uh, services, and so I was originally responding to communities from that sense, and then wanting to engage in a more preventative, uh, proactive portion of it. Um, we had not seen a, a significant deviation in the per capita rate of mass homicide for about 100 years until about 20 years ago. And then the rate started to surpass uh, the rate of population growth. And uh, it, there's a variety of research efforts that, uh, that look at the pattern of those. And what is really striking is that the time gap between episodes of mass violence in particular have shrunk dramatically from what they used to be. So it's not surprising at all that the public perceives a, a higher tempo of activity because it's markedly higher than what it has been in the past. And you're right, while uh, these incidents do occur in other nations around the world, uh, as a broad generalization, they don't occur uh, with the frequency that they do here. So there's something different about how, um, how our ca nation uh, faces these issues. Allison, how would uh, be great to get your perspective on this. Sure, yeah, I think that was a really brilliant response. So in terms of it being a uniquely American problem, I do agree um, that, but I do want to say we know that gun violence is problematic universally. However, we know that school shootings, right, are predominantly taking place here. And I think there's several reasons for that. And this is a pretty complex issue. So whether it's a combination of social media, right, we know that social media has been a huge vehicle. It gives people a large platform. We know that a lot of the perpetrators prior to carrying out an attack are usually posting threats on social media. They're giving clues. So there needs to be a lot more monitoring of social media, I think, moving forward. Um, I think violence in video games is another problem. A lot of these kids you know, who are playing these video games, it sort of becomes normalized or accepted, right? Um, so I think that's also a piece of it, just having that constant exposure. Relentless bullying is another major, major issue, right? We know that the majority of perpetrators, specifically with school shootings, um, have been victims of relentless bullying over and over again. And unfortunately, when you're in a very dark place, um, a lot of these students seem to retaliate in very volatile ways, whether it be because they're lacking social skills or they lack family support and peer support, there's isolation. There's a lot of different factors playing into that. I think that there's a lack of school counselors and mental health professionals. That's nationwide. We know that the ratio, I can tell you for school counselors, according to ASCA, the American School Counseling Association, is supposed to be 250 students to one counselor. That is not happening. Uh, when I was a school counselor at a Title I school, my caseload was over 500 students, um, and it was a very high-need school. So that's a big problem just in terms of the demand far outweighs what the supply is. Um, and I think also, you know, gun control, I know we talked about that earlier. You know, this is a very uh, controversial <laughs> issue. And, you know, in my opinion, you could have as many laws as you'd like to have, but the bottom line is if someone is looking to obtain a firearm, they will probably find a way to get that firearm, regardless of what laws are, are in place or not. Um, we know that there's also major issues with mental health, right, nationwide. And I think we're seeing that um, that's really pervasive in both the violence that's taking place in schools as well as the violence that, that's taking place in society at large. I think that what is taking place in the schools is directly a reflection of what's taking place 
in the larger society, right? So there needs to be a lot more focus on mental health because a lot of people either don't have access to get the mental health that they need, they don't have the money, they don't have the resources, there's a lack of equity, and that's for society and both in schools as well. So mental health is a major issue because when you think about it, people who are healthy, right, they're well-adjusted, they're fulfilled, they have a really strong support system. For the most part, I mean, there's always exceptions, but for the most part, they are not going out committing atrocities, right? So mental health, in my opinion, is a crux of the major issues going on here with violence that we're seeing both in society and in schools. I think that there's also pandemic-related stress, right, that has caused a lot of stress for students, both academically in terms of the remote learning, falling behind in the classroom, having isolation, right, um, not really having those face-to-face -face contacts, those conversations has taken a really a huge toll on students and critical stakeholders. Um, social media, like I said before, right, it gives people a way to just really a voice and a sense of control to share their plans. And we know that most people today are communicating via social media. So monitoring those threats, monitoring what's being posted, parental involvement is going to be really, really critical. Um, and I think that there's just an overall in society at large, there's a propensity for lawlessness. Right? There's a lack of consequences for so many things, and I think that just further exacerbates violence to occur. There's definitely been a breakdown in family structures since the pandemic, whether it's more parents getting divorced, changes at home, you know, kids maybe feeling a bit resentful or abandoned, feeling more isolated, not feeling heard or validated, and that could also be causing an increase in violence, right? Um, and I think schools need to do more. Like in addition to focusing on mental health, because we know that so many students are struggling and approximately half of all teenagers in this country have some sort of mental health diagnosis, which is pretty staggering. Um, so there definitely needs to be more of an emphasis on prevention. Right. I feel like everything we talk about, specifically with school shootings, is always after the fact. It's very reactive rather than proactive. And I think that a lot more of the focus needs to be on prevention so it doesn't escalate to the point of violence. Right. Both have given a great overview. And I, I want to seize on um, something which people have always recognized which is in the aftermath, mm -hmm. what either was already known or should have been known. And we've now witnessed, I mean, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll state the beginning of time as, as, you know, the University of Texas. But if you look at the continuum and you look at uh, everything that has occurred, and again, across the spectrum of venues and populations, et cetera. Um, what is it if, if, if both of you guys were to be invited to the White House and let's put aside executive orders and let's put aside the, you know, the press conferences and things like that, what do we now know and what should we now be doing? And let, let's, let's call it, Gene, if you don't mind my imposing upon you, but Give me, give me, give me the five things, ten things that you are telling your institutions that you would explain to the president of the United States, irrespective of who that person was. Well, David, I've been to the White House twice to speak on these issues. So I, I'm I not know that. And, that that's going to make a difference. My, yeah. Um, How's that worked I, out for I you, Gene? I appreciate the spirit in which you asked the question. Yeah. yeah exactly. Okay. <laughs> um, I think there's a variety of things, and uh, Allison certainly keyed in on uh, those, a preventative standpoint. 
on uh, for for a variety of issues. I mean, one of the things that we know greatly diminishes risk of violence of all levels, not just the catastrophic violence we've been primarily focusing on uh, more uh, in our discussion so far, but across all levels, is the creation of a of a caring and engaged community. And uh, I think some of the things that Allison uh, referenced have impacted greatly. Uh, on the diminishment of that sense of community within physical communities and certainly in the online community experience. And I think that it has uh, uh, led to an increased alienation and isolation um, and a lack of sense of humanity and respect for each other that contributes to uh, violence risk. So the more that we can uh, engage um, uh, in respectful and helpful ways in the day-to-day, -day, not just because we're concerned about something, someone, but because that's what we do with our fellow human beings and citizens, I think that would be helpful. Well, let, me, think, let, me let me stop you there because I want to, it's an important point that both of you have made. And I'll, I'll give you a perspective that I've heard. When we're seeing just the opposite in media, social media, and quite frankly, in our political arenas. We are not seeing that sense of community. We are not seeing that sense of common ground. We are seeing divisiveness, and quite frankly, um, I think it was within the last couple of months, uh, various elected officials in Washington sort of threatened each other physically on the floor of the House or Senate, I can't remember which. And so when you say this, and I'd be Allison, obviously, you're working in schools and with teachers and things like that. How do how does that message get through? How does it translate into action in light of the current environment, Gene? Well, and that was the piece that I wanted to add to what Allison had conveyed: is that the socio-political uh, dissension uh, and polarization is uh, has been marked. And if we look at the modeling effect, I mean, Allison has tremendously more experience in working with uh, youth in school settings in that regard. But our adults at all levels are not modeling very well the sorts of things I just articulated that would be helpful from a preventative uh, standpoint. And I think that starts with our community leaders, not just the politicians, uh, but when we have clergy members espousing uh, acts of violence um, uh, to those that disagree, it's, it's just phenomenal. Uh, to me. Um, and so I, I think that's been a uh, huge factor and I think it would be helpful if collectively we could take a bit of a breath and find where do we have some common ground here? And that doesn't mean, David, you and I have to agree on everything, but we can disagree in civil and, uh, and even strong ways that aren't so hate-filled. Um, the other thing that hasn't been mentioned here before, that is another context of this, is just the remarkable increase in hate-based incidents of all levels, in, uh, including homicidal attacks. But uh, in the day-to-day, -day, there are several of our citizens, of our fellow community members that, that live in fear and apprehension, and reasonably so. Um, and I don't think we're adequately addressing those, uh, those issues either. So yeah, I think that Jean made some really, really, really brilliant points again. In terms of, you know, this being a really highly politicized issue, I also, I, I agree with that. And I think that we need to look at this regardless of what stance you're coming from. You know, the gun violence needs to be much more bipartisan. So putting politics aside, right, this is a humanitarian crisis that's impacting all people from all political factions. Um, no one is invincible, we know that. So we need to put those differences aside and really work intentionally to create policies that will protect and safeguard our most vulnerable, these precious populations, these kids. So that I think really needs to take precedent. In terms of best practices and things that we can do and should do and need to do <laughs> um, is I think first and foremost, just like Jean was saying, you know, fundamentally creating that safe school climate is most important because when kids feel connected, when stakeholders in general, when they're more engaged, when they're more included and accepted by their peers and faculty 
and they're happier and healthier and they're successful, right? They're gonna, there's gonna be less truancy. There's going to be, you know, more unity, more cohesion and less volatility because kids who are thriving want to see other students thrive as well, right? So I think creating that safe space is really going to be critical. And I think we can do that a, a few ways. A, like you were saying, modeling, right? Behavior is learned. And so we have to model the type of behavior that we would want students to display themselves. Um, so I think that that's a, a definitely a huge piece of it. I think another piece of it is collaboration, right? We're not working in silos. We're not working in isolation. We're working together as a team. It truly does take a village. So networking with outside mental health agencies, collaborating with critical stakeholders, teachers, parents, administrators, everybody needs to be involved. This is a joint effort, right? Um, I think collaborating with the mental health agencies is also really critical because just so you're aware, school counselors cannot diagnose. So they can work with students and provide responsive services, individual, small group, classroom counseling, but they can't make diagnoses. And so students who are really struggling and need additional support, more intensive support, really need to have referrals made to outside mental health practitioners. Um, I think having violence prevention programs, anti-bullying programs, every single school needs to have an anti-bullying program. Bottom line, K-12, non-negotiable. We know that bullying is one of the leading causes, if not the leading cause, of school violence. And so teaching students about the implications of bullying, the dangers of bullying, what bullying really encompasses, right, the consequences of in terms of suicide and self-harm and depression and anxiety and so on and so forth. Um, so I think that's really, really critical that those components are in play. I think something else that schools need to do, um, and I'm sure Jean could speak to this in terms of using artificial intelligence and doing threat assessments, right? So AI software could be used potentially to detect firearms on campus, um, but threat assessments, and I know that Gene, this is his area of expertise, um, threat assessments is so essential, right? Because that's one of the best practices that allows stakeholders to work together to determine the degree to which a student poses a threat to him or herself, right? So really figuring out, does this kid have access to a weapon? Is there a strong support system? Is there a history here of behavioral issues? Are they struggling with underlying mental health issues? Have they posted on social media? So I think doing the threat assessment is really going to be critical in terms of identification. Um, we know the importance, like I said earlier, about creating those positive peer relationships, right? That's gonna be so important to make sure that kids are not feeling isolated or ostracized and they feel a sense of belonging. Um, the last thing I wanna speak to is the social emotional learning, right? So I do a lot of research on SEL and SEL is really the process by which kids or people in general, they really acquire and apply the skills necessary, whether it's managing their emotions or setting goals or showing empathy, building healthy relationships, right? Making sound choices. So teaching kids these life skills um, in terms of, you know, dealing with grief and loss, building their coping skills, communicating with one another. There's no communication because all of these kids are communicating via social media. So they're losing that face-to-face -face contact, um, um, you know, conflict resolution, overcoming problems peacefully. All of these really, really crucial soft skills are so inherently important um, in regard to mitigating violence and really just promoting overall success. Last thing I wanna say here as well is monitoring social media. Right, We know that social media, I'd say probably almost 90%, maybe if not more, of youth, kids, teenagers are using social networking sites. And like I had said earlier, you know, most of these perpetrators 
are posting on social media threats before carrying out an act of violence, or this is even how cyberbullying is occurring, and we know how dire cyberbullying is. Um, and so there needs to be much more monitoring of websites. Parents need to know what their kids are posting, what their kids are receiving. Um, because again, if there's alarming posts being made, then that needs to be reported immediately, whether it's to the administration, the authorities, so on and so forth. Okay, let me uh, jump in and I want to unpack a number of things here because mm -hmm. we've spoken um, about, we'll call it the macro environment um, and what's happening here at all levels of society. The, um, the issue of bullyism, which has existed since, I guess, the beginning of the first school, Allison, right? It always seems to be present and uh, the role of social media. Um, I don't know whether you, both of you have ever seen the movie Billy Madison with Adam Sandler, uh, but there's a scene in which um, Adam Sandler is forced to go back to school to earn his father's trust and in turn, you know, his role in the family. And uh, he realizes he's got to become a better person. He's an adult who's going back, going through grade school and, and high school. And uh, he realizes that he has amends to make. And there's a scene where he locates and calls um, a former schoolmate who is now an adult, played by Steve Buscemi. And he apologizes because he wasn't nice to Steve Buscemi. And he picked on him and realized he probably made his life miserable at school. And I just want to apologize for it. And Buscemi, who hasn't heard from him for, you know, 20 some odd years, uh, acts surprised and says to him, uh, no big deal. No, 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 no problem. Ah, it was nothing. It was nothing. It was nothing. And then when he hangs up the phone, you see Buscemi cross Adam Sandler's name off a list of people that he's planning to kill. Now, that's, you know, Adam Sandler's version of humor about this, but it was interesting because this phenomenon was highlighted, you know, obviously in a comedic context back in 1995, and here it is, look, it's, you know, some 30 years later. And we're just seeing academic studies about the impact of bullyism and near-term and long-term. And maybe we can start by unpacking that. And Gene, I know you've spent time um, looking at the social fabric of schools and kids and how they relate to each other. But maybe both of you can spend a little bit of time on that issue because, as you said, Allison, nonstop, that's off the board, right? We're, t we're taking that out of the school. Well, Allison did hit on it before. I mean, what, one of the things that's markedly different uh, since that time is that when a child was bullied at school, they could leave school and get away from it from a few hours. And the pervasiveness and the immediacy of communication uh, makes that very difficult if there's any access to electronic devices, whether it's a phone or, or the computer or tablet or what, what have you. And so that's had a, a remarkably uh, increased effect. And we see differential effects based on race, uh, ethnicity, uh, gender expression, identity, etc. Um, and the other thing is that we've got to get more refined in our, our programs. Um, recent research we've seen on the effectiveness of bullying prevention programs in schools shows some pretty good outcomes for many students, but not so much so for LGBTQ plus uh, students. And so we'll have to get more refined so that we can tailor to the, to the needs of a, of a variety of different uh, subgroups within our uh, communities. And I think we've been slow to do that. And we like nice, simple approaches where one size fits all. And that's not, not likely to do that. Uh, I think what Allison referenced before about uh, AI having increased utilization uh, for monitoring of what's going on, many schools have implemented uh, some version of that. Uh, to monitor activity on their networks using their devices. Uh, the caution I would put with that, depending on what version of it is used, um, you want to be very, we want to be very careful about stereotype uh, data 
that's being used to identify students disproportionately due to disability, race, ethnicity, etc. Because um, that's been a concern at times. Uh, but I, I fully agree with Allison. I think that we're going to see increased uh, AI use. I think there's going to be increased effectiveness of it over time, but with the caveat that I said before, so that will help. But there's another layer to this. Having uh, served on the Department of Justice review of the mass casualty incident at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas, uh, a couple of years ago, um, as Allison alluded to, in general, that subject engaged in a variety of online activity. Um, while not directly a threat to the school, there were threats about a school. And not only did peers whom he was interacting with online not address that in an effective uh, manner and getting an adult involved, neither did the social media companies. And if uh, they're in the best position to help monitor what's going on um, and to identify patterns of problematic behavior and uh, to help address it, and I just have not seen the partnership and engagement from them collectively on this. I think that's going to be absolutely critical, uh, given the pervasiveness of social media use by by youth as well as adults. Um, one of the things a little bit uh, off from that is while our focus has been on students within schools, just want to know that I've worked a remarkable number of cases involving staff at schools, uh, teachers and administrative staff and counselors even, uh, and, and of course the parents of students as well. And we know that across sectors, intimate partner violence coming into the school or workplace is a very significant issue. And so while there are a lot of concerns and opportunities to help uh, protect and prevent uh, violence against our students, I think it's important that we not forget the faculty and uh, staff that are working in schools as well, because I know many of them feel very vulnerable. Allison, your further thoughts, and I'd, I'd like to also probe on the social media because it's not just an excellent point about cyberbullying and inability to leave school for a few hours and escape things. And mm. of course, you never knew what people were saying on the telephone about you behind your back, but you're incredibly aware of what's being posted on social media and and I'll call it the scalability of those messages. Um, but there are also um, messages which various platforms are pushing out to the kids on their own. And maybe because you're deep, deeply involved with the various schools and you're probably at ground zero in terms of what kids and teachers are encountering, um, how, do, how should we be thinking about social media and the role and what, what it is that we should be doing? Right. So that's a really good question. I mean, in regard to cyberbullying, and then I'll go back to what I was going to say about bullying because it is such an important topic. But yeah, in regard to cyberbullying, we know that social media sites are so public, right? And I think one of the challenges is that the messages that are being posted or the videos now that are being posted um, are seen by a vast number of people instantaneously. And I think another challenge is the fact that social media sites are really allowing people to share and post information anonymously, right? And so it's really making it a bit easier, more feasible to be mean and to be hurtful, where people are saying things online that they may not necessarily say if they were able to be identified. And we know that social media has played a really instrumental role, like I said, in terms of sharing information and being instantaneous with Snapchat and TikTok and Facebook and Instagram and, so, and things being live streamed. Um, it is definitely highlighting, right? And um, I want to say adding to, it's, it's really escalating what's taking place because it's acting as a platform to deliver it to so many. Um, and so I think more, as you stated earlier, needs to be done, the social media sites, because they know how prevalent social media is in the lives of youth, in the lives of people in general, 
Um, I think that they need to be much more diligent, much more intentional um, about what is allowed and what is not allowed. And again, there needs to be more monitoring. If there's inappropriate messages being posted, why are these messages not being flagged immediately? Um, and so I think that they definitely need to be more accountable because there's a huge liability issue um, with allowing hateful, volatile, violence-inciting messages, you know, being posted and not taking any action. And inaction is clearly not acceptable. That's, that's not a response. Um, so that's what I would say regarding social media. Um, in terms of bullying, well, I, I do want to say, I want to add to the fact that there are three major causes, right, of school violence. One is side effects of psychotropic meds. Um, the other one is bullying, and then the last being retaliation and revenge, which I think is directly correlated with the bullying. In terms of the psychotropic meds, you know, some of these students who are dealing with underlying mental health issues, if, have, if they have been diagnosed with some sort of mental health disorder, they may, they may not take their medication, whether it's consistent or not. But we know that some medications have side effects, which is really interesting. If you look at Nicholas Cruz even, just this is one example, the day that he carried out the atrocity in Parkland, they found that he had SSRIs in his system. So whether or not that impacted his choices, I can't say one way or the other, but there's a possibility, right, that these side effects may exacerbate feelings of rage or anger or hallucinations or whatnot. Um, so I think that's important to note. We know that bullying has a monumentally negative impact on students, whether it's academic, social, emotional, psychological, um, and this is repetitive, relentless behavior over and over again, whether it's intimidation, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, psychological. We know it's a very serious problem. We know that it leads to dropout rates and truancy, lack of self-worth, right? Major mental health issues. Cyberbullying, in my opinion, is almost more problematic just because of its pervasiveness, right? And the fact that it's so far reaching. And what's really interesting is that there was a, a study done by the Cyberbullying Research Center, and this is a little bit ago, and they found that 73% of teens, and I'm sure the percentage is probably higher today, who have been cyberbullied have experienced it on social media, right? So whether it be Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat, this is where the harassment and the bullying has taken place. And so, you know, once something is out there, kids need to understand it's there permanently, right? And so there's legal ramifications there. And again, there's so many catastrophic consequences just in terms of one's overall wellness. Um, you know, and we know that those who experience bullying are more likely to struggle, of course, with mental health and behavioral issues. So that's, I think, another major problem. We know that bullying leads to self-harm, suicide, and violence. Those kids who are bullied um, are almost nine times more likely to contemplate, to even think about committing suicide than those who don't. If you remember that recently, it happened last year, it was in New Jersey, that student Adriana Cooch, she was physically assaulted at Central Regional High School, and the bullying had been going on for a long time. Right. So school was aware of it, the family was aware of it, and one day, this, this girl, this little girl, was assaulted in the hallway, like abrasively, physically assaulted. It was like a gang assault, and it was videoed. It was uploaded to social media, and two days later, the girl commits suicide. So it's just, it's so gut-wrenching, it's so horrendous. And it's really, I think, what, what has happened to society is so frightening, right? Just the fact that people are actually getting this perverse pleasure out of watching another human being suffer. I mean, it's, it's really, really sick. And I think, like I said before, what was alarming most is that the, the school was aware of what the student was going through and was aware that bullying was an ongoing issue and for whatever reason didn't take appropriate measures to support the student. 
Um, and so I, I think it's just really important that schools, again, that there's a bullying policy, there's gotta be some kind of anti-bullying program. Um, and not so much punitive consequences, but I think because that's not helpful, but I think that there needs to be more emphasis on creating that safe school climate where bullying, there's a zero tolerance policy, and there's got to be more emphasis on empathy. I think that's really, really crucial. So look, two takeaways that I'm hearing very clearly from both of you is, first of all, this is this problem is not a legislative, simply a legislative issue, okay? Mm -hmm. And too often it's been cast when, uh, Allison, when I was at Goldman Sachs, the one certain stock trade that you could, um, you could make, every time there was one of these tragedies, um, the, the shares of gun manufacturers and munitions manufacturers and the sellers went up because um, there was the rush to announce that, you know, we need to have new legislation, controlled arms, et cetera, and the usual speeches. Uh, the exception, by the way, was during the Trump years because they knew the administration wasn't going to do anything. But it, 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 what I'm hearing is this is very much a complex issue with many, I'll call it, uh, many factors behind this, and there's no silver bullet, but we, there are steps that can be taken here, certainly in the schools for a safe environment that, that where individuals are not preyed upon either psychologically or physically, emotionally, et cetera, and bullied. And the ability to understand the impact of social media, the ability to detect when somebody might be at risk um, and the promise of AI and perhaps monitoring this um, social media accounts and what's happening in the environment, but that people actually, when they see these things, and Gene, I'm going to go back because you said what what was known and, and, and could have been known, that this can no longer be a, a, a rear view mirror. Uh, people really have to be very, very responsible people. The administrators, the teachers, the people who lead safety and security at corporations and at events, they have to be very proactive in thinking about this as something, a problem that everyone has to own and it's not going to be, we, we shouldn't be looking to our political corridors to address it. And of course, Allison, you mentioned, both you and Gene have mentioned the importance of mental health support. Is that, is that sort of a, a fair overview of, I'll call it this, where we are in, with respect to this issue? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you highlighted, you really encapsulated the major, the major points. Um, there definitely needs to be more focus on mental health. There needs to be more crisis training, right? That way schools have protocols to follow. There's a crisis plan. And more importantly than that, there needs to be more emphasis on prevention. So it's not getting to the point of God forbid having another school shooting. So what can we do ultimately to mitigate that from occurring? So yeah, I think the focus moving forward, like I said, there needs to be much more emphasis on bullying prevention, violence prevention programs, having more counselors in the schools, having more mental health support, integrating all of the social emotional learning into the core counseling curricula because that's giving students the resources and the tools that they need to thrive and to hopefully be the best that that they can be and reach their fullest potential and that's um i think at the end of the day what is what is most important okay and what i'm also getting a sense of gene is that um the factors that have been behind these types of events or, or the catalysts, um, there, are even more, there are even more that are present within our society these days, whether it's you know, because of the behavior of certain people, a general sense of lawlessness, um, the fact that divisiveness seems to be an accepted norm these days, um, but also because of the amplification of everything from social media and 
Allison referenced video games, etc. Um, is that essentially what you're seeing from your vantage point? Well, those are certainly contributory factors. I, I think um, some of it is, is certainly fairly nuanced in that uh, the exposure to violent uh, video games, uh, incidental exposure doesn't in itself show a significant increase in uh, violence risk. Uh, but there are some people that use, for example, uh, combat and first-person shooter video games um, as rehearsals uh, for means of addressing their grievances. And I think a, a more troubling trend that I've seen more recently, if you look within the online gaming platforms, uh, the significant amount of uh, hateful rhetoric and violent extremist rhetoric or approaches right. um, for to activate or to, to recruit uh, it's really startlingly high. And so I think we need to recognize it's not just a, uh, a young person who might be participating in a first-person shooter video game, but it's what else they're exposed to within that. It may be less the game and more the platform it provides for exposure to others who escalate grievance and uh, foster uh, activation uh, forward in that. I, I think what we're struggling with is that the the amount of ways that we can be exposed and influenced has grown, grown so much more dramatically than what the human mind is quite able to adjust to uh, over time. Uh, we just don't evolve quite this quickly. And so uh, there's just this whole panoply of, uh, of factors that are uh, coming to bear there. And uh, I fully agree with uh, the excellent points that Allison has made about the importance of um, mental health and counseling services. But I th do think it's also broader than that. A, a lot of this is not about mental illness and uh, so much is about poor mental wellness. And those are not the same thing. Uh, most of us will experience periods of poor mental wellness. And it's during those times that incidents of uh, harmful activities, not just violence, but de self-detrimental and detrimental to others uh, occur with greater regularity. regularity. Uh, there are a lot of folks that escalate to violence that don't do not exhibit symptoms of mental illness, but they're struggling in scope with coping with a number of stresses. Um, to Allison's point, the growth of uh, uh, SEL programs, I think, is going to be critical uh, within schools to foster that ability for uh, emotional regulation and management and crisis management. Um, those are all things that escalate violence risk that don't require mental illness as a uh, contributory factor. So it's, I, I don't want to discount mental illness per se. I just want to make sure that we're clear that that's not all we're talking about when we talk about mental health. It's people who are struggling. And I think that uh, most of us would agree that over the last few years, these have been remarkably stressful times, um, socially, politically, health-wise with the pandemic, um, and just the speed with which things going. I think those things are all having a contributory effect. Thanks for listening to this week's Rain Insights podcast episode. This is part one of a two-part series on mitigating instances of school violence. Tune in next week for part two of this conversation. This is the Rain Insights podcast, which is part of the Rain Insights series, comprised of both virtual and real world events, offering unique practical perspectives from Rain's leading experts in risk management. To learn more, please visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R A N E network.com. Thanks for listening.